Hey everybody, it is episode 52 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Rogue Running in Austin, Texas. My co-host Steve is here as always. Hey Steve. Hello world. And we are excited to have a very special guest, Marathon Royalty of Sorts in the house, brought to us with our by our friends from Reebok Running, Steve Jones. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great, thanks. For those that may not know, I'll give you a quick bio on our guest today. He's won the Chicago Marathon twice. He's won London and New York and finished second at Boston. So podiums on four marathon majors plus former world record holder in the marathon and half marathon and current British marathon record holder. So he's got a decent marathon resume, Steve. What do you think? Well, and he's just basically a badass <laughs> as we've as, we, as we've been spreading around yes. the world to say it, it it's uh he's an absolute they badass. don't make him like steve jones anymore no they don't <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah that may be good for the world <laughs> so so we are excited to have steve here we're going to be talking to him about his career in marathoning as well as getting some tips because he is now a coach in boulder of both uh elite level athletes as well as adult athletes and so it's it's going to be good to get some training, marathon training tips from him, marathon racing tips, as well as just learn more about his history in this sport. So we're super excited to have him on. This is like, I'm kind of nervous, Steve. Like, this it is like a cool moment. Like, we have running royalty in front of us. Well, you, I I told this to Steve offline, but uh, it, literally my greatest hero is the sitting on the t at the table with us as a as you, a you as haven't a, told me that yet right well <laughs> I haven't told many people because ultimately he's not at this point in time it's not a name that name that people bandy about as being one of the greatest of all time and to me it's an absolute it's an absolute shame I was saying that I grew up I was born in 1969 and and we no. we, we had a lot of really <laughs> I'm old we had a lot of really 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 good marathoners in the early 70s early and mid late 70s and with with uh, Frank Shorter and Billy. Billy Rogers and many, many great marathoners. But we, in the time that I was coming of age where I was doing my miles and getting my runs in and I was visualizing who I was running stride for stride with, um, I always was trying to race in my mind some young version of Steve Jones because if I could beat a version of Steve Jones, then I would beat everybody because he, it is really damn good. Um, known yeah. as the toughest cookie out there and super excited about this. Yeah. Also Very an Olympian at the 10,000 meters. So he's done it at all levels and world cross and too, right? Yeah. What was your world cross record? Um, top 10, four times maybe. Yeah. yeah. In the years where it was, uh, everyone was running the yeah. world cross at yeah. the time. Yes. <laughs> legitimate. And years. the Kenyans were just it's always coming, legitimate. Just coming through. Yeah. 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 So serious running royalty and running resume here. Thank you for joining us, Steve. We really appreciate it. As we always do, we talk current events and we have a very, very, very relevant. We've got a, a very doozy. relevant topic for today with Steve here, which is that Elliot Kipchoge has announced that he's coming to the London Marathon to face off versus Mo Farah in London 2018. Huge, huge announcement hopefully we'll add some other names like Bikaley potentially to the mix as we go but I want to talk about a couple things with this and we'll start with you Steve Sisson Kipchoge versus Farah what do you think well I think is it's this is this like child's play for Kipchoge you know having Farah in the race or is this legitimate threat there is no legitimate threat to Ilya Kipchoge <laughs> at this point in my opinion um, I mean, he was on the ropes uh, in Berlin, and we did see um, cracks, and we did see that people can run with him, and now folks are not think of him as an invincible and untouchable athlete, but 
it all that race almost solidifies him in my mind as even greater than I thought he was before because of his ability when the chips were down to rally and come back under really tough situations. So, but I've, I've I guess my my shorthand on this is there was also a quote that Kip, that Kipchoge gave and I probably won't get it exactly right, but it was something to the effect of. They asked him for his response of what it was like to have Sir Mo as Sir Mo Farah as added to the field, and his statement was, um, "I think it will be very good to make an exciting environment, to make it an exciting environment, which is pretty much the most dis, the biggest diss I've heard in a long, long time in terms of he's going to make the environment around the race interesting, but he's not, he's not any competition." He's not a He's not a threat, and I don't think Mo Farah is a threat. I do believe other people that could enter this race could be big threats, sure. and other folks we, as we found out at Berlin, people we don't even freaking know could be threats because yes. Yes. the young bucks are coming and running earlier. So uh, I think it's super great, exciting to about the. I'm excited for the race itself, but I'm more excited for the media showdown that will happen and the and the hype that will come from this. But I'm not so concerned right now about what that race is going to play out to be. So and and for context. Farah is a 208 marathoner, and Kipchoge is a two flat or 203 marathoner, right. depending on how you look at it. Taking this now to you, Steve Jones, as the British marathon record holder, what's your view of Farah's future in the marathon? Um, well, it's tough to say, really. I, I, I can't remember how old he is. Was it 30, 33, 34? Low maybe. 30s. Yep. Yeah. Um, but he brings all the tools to the race he's got speed he's got he's got endurance he's proved out on the roads running sub sub 60 minutes for, for a half marathon uh 208 no not hanging about for for the marathon for a first attempt um and he's got racing experience he's got obviously got tons of miles in his legs so i think he brings all the tools to the to the race uh, unlike steve i think he would have a, have a chance to win win the event um because he has all the tools and he has a racing brain as well. And I suspect it, it won't be a 203, 204, 205 type of race. It will be a kind of race that will play right into his hands. Um, Interesting. As in, as in his Olympics and World Championships races where he, he can sit and sit, make a move, come back, sit and sit and make a move again. I, I suspect he could do that. He has the tools to do that. Whether do you think they'll let him? Um, I, I, th I think... One of the things about bringing Kipchoge into the race is giving London Marathon some um, credibility, I suppose, or some authenticity because y you kind of suspected that they would th they would cater the race for Mo, mm -hmm. for Mo to come out and win, break the British record, uh, world record if, if it was a world record attempt. Um, but by p bringing him in, was it yesterday? Yes. Uh, it was announced. <laughs> uh, it's just give, it's given it a lot of legitimacy and... Uh, it it will be a great race, and when you get people like that, you know, you go back to the '80s and look at Boston Marathon when, you know, they would have uh, Carlos, myself, Seiko, mm -hmm. Rob DiCastella, um, John Tracy, uh, Andy Ronan, all, uh, all the top figures at the time, and we spent 20 miles looking at each other. <laughs> you know, um, consequently, it was a 2:12 or 2:11 win for Seiko, um, and it could be that kind of race in, in London. Fair play to Dave Bedford, always puts the best field together. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what you can say about Chicago, Boston, New York, the best race, the best foot race is always in in London. Dave and Bedford always manages to put the best. And field. it hasn't always been that way. That's um, something relatively, I wouldn't say relatively new, but it's only been the last 10 or 15 years that that mm -hmm. was the case. Yeah, uh, because primarily it, 
it, it was a European kind of race, you know, mm. you, and, and you always wanted a British 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 winner uh, or somebody that uh, competed in the UK and and locally in Europe all the time. Um, you know, you, you had Italians, you had the Portuguese um, winning several years in a row, mm-hmm. uh, and then Saron came along and won a couple of years uh, for Mexico. Um, you know, it's it, it's become a legitimate foot race. I'd I'd like to see it like Boston uh, and New York and Chicago where they don't bring pacemakers in mm-hmm. because I, I think it makes a time trial out of the event and time trial isn't a true re- result in my mind. But um, you were you ran time trials? That's myself. the way you raced it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. by uh, yourself. Steve Jones, pacer. <laughs> um, Self-paced. So, so if, if, if there's a, a move I'd like to see London do is, is to get away from the pacemakers. But I think more so in Britain than it is in America, um, there is this passion and, and hunger for fast times and to see world records being broken every time people step on the start line. Yeah. So what do you think... So you think Farah has a chance. What do you think his potential is in the marathon? Your record's just over a minute faster than what he's run so far, but he only has one. And really, it wasn't an honest effort at the marathon. It was kind of a yeah. probably a payday for him <laughs> while he took a little Definitely, break from yeah. the track versus a really true first debut marathon. What do you think he can run? I think he could break the world record. Like I said just now, he has all the tools. But unfortunately, um, where they're like the Kenyans, they could go out and run that kind of pace and break a world record. He he has to have, I, I think he'd have to have it set up for him mm-hmm. and to help him through, um, li- like they do anyway. Uh, right. To run 202 or 203, you need you need that help through 20, 23 miles. Um, but, but he has the tools to do it. You know, nobody can beat him on the track. Uh, very, very tough to beat on the road. And he has some cross-country skills as well. So he, he brings the whole package to the start of the race. I want to say you're known for saying that if you can run a fast 10K, you run a fast marathon. Is that part of your thinking here? Is that obviously he's done yeah. very well at that distance, so but do you think that translates but up? But there's more to it than just running a fast K- 10K. It, it's what gets you to that fast 10K. You mm. have to put the work in, the graft in. It's not an overnight um, result, I suppose. You know, People ask me to write a six-month program for Boston Marathon or Olympic trials. My program w- was... Uh, 15 years <laughs> of <laughs> hard running. You know. yeah. You're uh, speaking our language, Steve. Yeah. Yes. And people don't understand that. Go, right. oh, no, you know, it's in three months. C- can you get me to the start line? Well, they're looking for more than the start line. They're looking for P- PRs. They're mm-hmm. looking for for uh, uh, qualifying times and stuff like that. We're unrealistic. Um, I c- yeah, I can r- I can write a six month program, but you'd be dead for five months. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and hopefully recovered for the last month. You know? <laughs> yes, you're speaking <laughs> our language. It's so Farah has a chance. It's going to be interesting for sure. I mean, it, I think to me it'll also be interesting to see if, because I would imagine Kipchoge is going to go for the world record. That's the missing piece from his resume as one of the greatest, mm-hmm. or if not the greatest marathoner of all time. They have to be setting this up for him to go for a world record. So will Farah also jump on that train, or will he get a second group of pacers maybe in the 204-205 range, that'll give him a chance to get a big PR, get the British record, but maybe not compete for the win. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. That's obviously um, feasible, you know, that he would do that. Uh, But, you know, the the marathon's a tough tough event, and if you're going to go for it, you've got to go for it. You don't... And I think he found that out when he ran London Mm -hmm. three years ago, uh, that 
you you can't just jump in it and 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 wing it right you have to be prepared you have to be psyched up and ready to race and he he wasn't that day it was it was a long a hard long run for him that yeah day. he ended up in no man's land yeah. and and steve you said you know what the the thing that i 100 percent agree with you about mo that makes him extremely dangerous in this is that he knows how to win mm-hmm. and he he knows how to pace himself just right you know the argument against him before this year's world championship was he kept those races slow or you know yep. relatively slow mm-hmm. we know how fast those guys were running but they were championship style races that he made but this time they ran exceedingly fast and he still outran them. he couldn't get him beat he, they did get him in the 5k mm-hmm. but they couldn't do, get him in the 10 and as you said, the 10 is more indicative of what's going to happen yeah. in the marathon. So I do see that for sure. And I do think the most dangerous scenario for everybody in that race is to, to play out the way you're talking, where they set something up for Kipchoge and Mo goes with them. <laughs> and that's going to be problem. That would be problematic. I think, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> I think... Kipchoge's been added to set it up for, for Mo. Yeah, wouldn't... Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, that's my own personal Does opinion. Does Kipchoge know that? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. Probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's getting paid well to come in and race. Right. <laughs> Makes and, sense. And, and, and he's down. And, and he's down and for he, a fight. Yeah. And he believes in himself. Oh, I he mean, definitely but it does. Is, yeah. It is for Kipchoge. This yeah. is a different animal than racing Bikaili or, or Kip saying. But you, do, you don't bring pussies in... To take on Mo, you know, Abs- you bring, absolutely. You bring the best in the world to take him on, and well, the British wouldn't put up with that. But hopefully, his pride will say, "Right, I, I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I can do. I'm just going to go with him." Yep, I think that's uh, when you say it that way. I'm backpedaling a little bit. See, I don't have a problem <laughs> admitting when I'm wrong, even before I'm wrong. But I'm, I don't really care. So I just want to watch the race. <laughs> it's going to be good. Watch. It's going to be good. I hope he goes for it because <laughs> it, it'll be interesting, and he will definitely have. An edge potentially in that final 10K that Kipchoge frankly can't match if Mo's still around. What are you talking about? Kipchoge was a, was a <laughs> he's like he's was a super fast five k guy. He's older though. You he know, is probably Kip- approaching forty. And I also really think Kipchoge is not going to make the mistake that many others do and underestimate what Mo Farah oh, brings oh to the yeah. table. No, so I get it. Look, but, Kipchoge is yeah. is a maestro. He, <laughs> yeah. he will not be he will not be easily <laughs> yeah. beaten by the up and coming. There'll uh, be no underestimation going. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah exactly. Be no he's eyes wide open <laughs> on what he's going to do. <laughs> but it'll be interesting. It'll yeah. be interesting. So. That's going to be fun to watch. We'll have that playing out in April, just like uh, Boston. So we'll have lots to talk about in the spring, Steve. As it's we the do best. For that. I, I love the fall, but I don't. There's just something about those spring marathons that just make the excitement so much. Maybe it's we're all coming out of. We don't. We don't have much of a winter here. We're all but coming out of hibernation. Yeah, say <laughs> everybody, and, and we're all getting excited yeah. about it again. And here we go. Where well, you got Boston and you got London coming back to back, and it's just. It's just cool, really cool. So with that, let's move to our chat with Steve, kind of get to a more formal interview. Thanks for indulging our love for the he marathon. Did, he seemed like he was rolling with he, the punches he, there he, pretty he, well. He's, <laughs> he's got an opinion he's or two. He's got some experience <laughs> in this area. So, again, thank you for joining us, Steve. You obviously have a storied career, but we like, would like to go back to the beginning and talk a little bit about how you got into the sport, what drew you to it. What kept you in it in those early years? As you said, you had 15 year kind of build up to some of these big results. What kept you in it? What was what was it about for you at an early age? Um, my very first run was a race. Um, I never trained. I'd, I'd, I'd never run anything except for running away from 
people are going to beat me up or the police, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but I belong to a youth group called the uh, Air Training Corps. And uh, October 1970, uh, every, uh, every year they have a, a championship um, series, you know, like a, an area championships, uh, uh, a group championships, and a national championships. And I, I got asked, because we were a man short, um, if I would, if I would uh, run, and I said no. And <laughs> they said, come on, Jonesy, it's a, it's a day out, because we had to catch a bus down to the seaside. So a day at the seaside on the bus, uh, we get lunch paid for. So I said, okay. Free <laughs> <laughs> lunch. So I went down. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I finished fifth in the race, a cross-country race. And it was snowy. It was wet. It was muddy. I was wearing a pair of uh, uh, Woolworths daps. We call them daps. Uh, you call them sneakers or mm-hmm. um, yeah, plimsolls. And I finished sixth, uh, fifth. sorry. And I really enjoyed it. I, I was running around. It was hurting. Uh, fifth place, and I was re- singing a song in my mind. You know, I think it was a Beatles song, uh, <laughs> as you do when you you you, you, d- you just don't know how much further it's going to be. It <laughs> I think it was three miles. I'd never, you know, three miles was a long way. Yeah. Although, you know, we'd probably run that up on the mountains, you know, playing around as kids, chasing chasing each other. Um, mm-hmm. And I finished fifth, and I I really enjoyed it. Uh, nobody could believe it because. On the way down, I'm at the back of the bus smoking my cigarettes and, <laughs> and, and singing the songs. How old were you? Fifteen. Um, uh, we get down there, finish fifth, and I didn't. I, I didn't remember I was smoking my cigarettes until um, last October. Just gone. I was home in Wales, and I, I bumped into a guy that was on the same bus as me. He he finished sixth, and he <laughs> said, oh, "I remember you." He said, "You were sitting at the back of the bus smoking a cigarette," <laughs> and then he beat us all. <laughs> so nonchalant. <Yeah. laughs> but um, so. That's how I started, and uh, three weeks later there was uh, a another round, and I finished sixth in that, which qualified me for another race. And um, then I started running just once a week. Then on Wednesday nights, at we had a fitness class for a, a Duke of Edinburgh's award, which young cadets and young kids could go for. It was almost like a, um, uh, leading up to Queen Scout or or Eagle Scout uh, you have in America. Um, gold the gold medal for the Duke of Edinburgh award is is, is pretty prestigious. And Wednesday night was fitness night because part of the the whole thing is the social side. There was a, a fitness side, and then you had to go and do a camp camping expedition for three or four days. And one of the guys started introducing a three mile run on Wednesday night, so I trained once a week <laughs> uh, three miles. for the next um, three years until I joined the Royal Air Force. Wow! But that's how it started. It was great. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the part of Wales that you come from, and uh, <coughs> because I don't, I think. Americans don't really have a clear understanding of w- the variety and of w- the Welsh countryside. And what what you have sea, you have mountains, you have so mm-hmm. many things. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and and how that might have play into sort of the place playing into the the, the runner that you became. Very blue collar. Um, now it's very green. You know, not green collar, but the area is green. It's <laughs> blue collar. Uh, my my hometown had a, one of the biggest steel works in uh, in the country. Uh, Eberville, uh, Richard Thompson Baldwin, and it was three miles long. It, c- it covered the whole valley. Uh, you know, all the houses on the side of the mountains and steel works went right down through the valley. Um, and you know, everybody worked there. You know, twenty-two thousand people worked it, it at steel works at, at, at its height. And when it closed ten or fifteen years ago, there was like a thousand people working there. Wow! Uh, it, it, um, 
very blue collar. Everybody either worked in the steelworks or down the coal mine. Uh, there's very little service industry because the council or the local council took care of, because we all lived in council houses, so the council took care of any repairs you needed to the house and all that sort of stuff. And very socialistic kind of uh, um, atmosphere, I suppose, uh, environment. But we loved it. I, m I lived on in a state called Hilltop, and it was literally the top of a hill. And out to my front door, it was just, and it still is today, although I don't live there anymore. Um, from Hilltop, it's just grass and mountains and sheep and ponds and more mountains so you know we we grew up running around those mountains um we all went to school together it's 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 a great place I and mean, i go home uh, although i i probably only spend about you know 10 days as the longest i spent there for many years now uh, i'm ready to come back after 10 days <laughs> to see my friends some of my old running friends my old running club um very blue collar you know it's it's uh, uh today unemployment is about 25 26 percent in my hometown wow it's it, it's uh it's very run down uh, I, I still have books where pictures from um you know the 40s 50s and 60s of, of the town and, and you wouldn't believe how the poverty of the town i suppose I and mean, i love it and everybody that's grown up there loves it you know and has loved it some people have moved away think oh, I'm glad I moved uh, I'd never go back but it, you know it's my home um, hometown and y you only remember the good times kind of thing it was tough it, you know young estate you know, three two two families in this it within four five doors of me had nine kids you know so wow uh, it, it was great growing up how did that inform the runner that you became um do you think it had much to do with it, or do you I think, think so? Because of the environment, in terms of being out there on the mountain, be running around. If we didn't have a soccer team, we uh, we were in the rugby team. If we didn't have a rugby team, we played cricket. Um, if we di didn't play cricket, we were stealing milk off somebody's doorstep and running away. You <laughs> know, so, um, it was it, it was a great environment, um, uh, and nothing was easy. You know, you know, you hear um, stories of. You know, kids going to school with no shoes or holes in their shoes, holes in the back of their trousers. It, that was me, mm. you know. Uh, it's, uh, it, uh, but not just me. It was all my friends as well, you know, because our parents worked, or our fathers anyway, worked at the steel works or down the coal mine. There wasn't a great deal of money around. Um, four kids. My, my dad worked every hour he could possibly work. Yeah. Uh, so I think a tough environment, but... It stood me well all my life, you know. So that I think that's one of the ma major things. The other thing is being told you can't do something. <laughs> and I, I've always had this little uh, uh, bee in my bonnet, I suppose, or chip on my shoulder. When somebody says I can't do something, then I, I, I endeavor to try and do it. <laughs> I remember when I joined the Royal Air Force. Obviously, I'd run a couple of times before joining the Air Force, uh, three three times three or four times a year i went and and w through basic training i uh, i would beat the P the ptis the physical training instructors <laughs> on the cross-country course and um and i just happened to mention it one day i'd like to run for the royal air force and a guy that joined up the same day day as me from the next town is fr from me said no you can't do that it's too many good runners in the air force that <laughs> set me going right away <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna do that well i got to my first uh, my first 
permanent station and I signed up for the cross country team and uh, they put me in a B team. <laughs> oh no. And, and I ran like the, the second fast, fastest time for my unit. <laughs> so they had to put me up to the next, to the A team. Then. And within, within a year, I was on the RAF squad then. You know, not just my station squad, but the RAF squad. And, uh, so they figured it out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, but all my running career has been, you, you, I didn't get selected for this, so I proved them wrong. And I didn't get selected for that, I proved them wrong. And you were mentioning um, earlier about me giving two fingers to the, to the crowd. Well, yep. I remember running, uh, it was 1982, I think, 81, 82. And I had just come back from America. It was Royal Air Force versus US United States Armed Forces down at Annapolis in uh, Maryland. And I run a 1,505, 5,000 there on the track. I came back and then I, I flew straight to Helsinki and did a, a 10,000 there and, I and a 3,000 on the same weekend. <laughs> and I came back from there and then we went to Czechoslovakia for the golden 10,000. Mm -hmm. I finished six there and I was the fifth Brit. <laughs> um, and there wasn't, there wasn't a second covering all six of us. I fly back from from uh, Czechoslovakia at the airport, and a guy called Andy Norman, who organised a lot of the the races, uh, international races in in Europe, met us and said, uh, "I I need you to run a 5k against East East Germany." <laughs> I s so I said, "Okay," S uh, which was going to be three days later. <laughs> so I went home, drove back, came back up to London, and uh, ran the 5k, and I was slotted for the Oslo Bislett Games 10,000, which was the pre premier, premier event every year yes. to, to try and get, get into that race. So I, uh, I was si uh, signed up for that. And then I got uh, a letter from the British board asking me to be a reserve for the Europa Cup final. Semi-final, actually, the Europa Cup semi-final. And I said, I, I just need some rest because I got this big 10,000 coming up. They didn't agree with that, so they... they, they rescinded my permit to go to Oslo to run oh. 10,000. Oh. So I couldn't go. And the other got four guys in that, that went with me out to, to Czechoslovakia, they could go because <laughs> they had a sick note for because they couldn't, you know, said, oh, I'm, they got a doctor to say that. Yes, or they, knew, they yeah. knew the game. Yeah, <laughs> and I didn't. I was, yeah. I was young to all this. Well, <laughs> they were running in Oslo and I got another letter from the British board saying, you've been selected to run for Great Britain against Russia following weekend <laughs> so i said okay <laughs> and because i was pretty angry then <laughs> well we g uh, and it was at gateshead in the north of england and i i ran the ten thousand, and i lapped everybody in the field i went off like a bat out of hell because <laughs> um, i was angry um, <laughs> bat out of hell uh, and i i lapped everybody except one person wow. and i was coming down the home straight uh, everybody's clapping and uh, and saying you know, cheering me on, I just give two fingers up, <laughs> up to the, f the federation because he knew they were all up in the yes. sky boxes watching the, watching the track. <laughs> I give him two fingers, and the crowd went from yeah, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> got a little bit quiet. Well, and I mean, ten thousand meters on the track—that many—it's hard. That's hard on your body. 
how did that harden you? And the travel. Well, and, and the, the travel. travel. How did that harden you for marathoning later? Well, you. I mean, you don't really think of it because it's all part of your. All part of your, of your experience. You're learning your trade. You know, you get in as many races as you can. Um, it's like I say, you just didn't think of it. You just put your shoes on and ran. <laughs> Nowadays, of course, if somebody has to run more than two ten thousands in a s- in a year, then they 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 quit early in the summer because they're tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they're also worried about having bad results maybe on their running resume versus it sounds Who like cares about the resume? you guys didn't care. <laughs> you were just like, I'm going to race and whatever happens, happens. Well, there's so many races around, you know, okay. If you had a bad race on Tuesday, there was another one on Saturday you could jump into. And I think th- there isn't that um, many races today where people can do that, you know. And people hardly ever pull positives out of a performance uh, even bad performances I, I could pull a positive out of it <laughs> you know and it's so hard coaching today to try and get you know the people I coach to understand that, that even though they didn't feel great they didn't get the time they were looking for there's some positives there to pull out of it at, at, at some point or other <laughs> we, we just yeah go ahead Steve. we just we just did an entire podcast our last one was about how failure is not failure and how, how, how it is important to have big goals, but it's also important to fail going towards big yeah. goals because otherwise Jeez, you, f- you fail more than you, than you succeed. We know these things, legi- we know these things intellectually, but it seems like we're creating a cult. We, uh, we have a culture that's a little bit softer than, than it needs to be. And, and, and it is what it is. Uh, we do our best as coaches, yeah. but um, the one thing that we know for sure is that the marathon always wins and you will and oh, yeah. y- in that race, uh, you're going to you're going to meet your maker no matter what, and you'd better you'd better be present and correct because mm-hmm. it's it's not gonna it's not fucking around. No, yeah. it's close to it. But <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you tell someone that you're coaching that might have struggle with the idea that, or fear of failure, so to speak? What do you tell someone? Um, go and do it again. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with failure. You know, it's not it's not the end of the world. It's not it's not like I say, that this part of your learning experience, it's part of your resume. You're building up this resume of, of, uh, of not only the results, but how you're feeling it during during those events, how you felt afterwards, how, wh- what you did before it, how you felt during the race. You know, it's th- how the preparation went. What can you change, or or should you change anything? You know, um, I do a lot of uh, lifting up. You know, uh, <laughs> s- yeah. and and. Uh, patting ba- on shoulders and patting on backs and wiping tears, you know. doesn't seem like that, that comes natural to you, necessarily. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. I, I but, but because I, I was a prolific racer, I raced a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, s- some years I probably raced 40 times a year, 40 wow. or 50 times a year. <laughs> um, some of the races were training kind of races where I'd experiment of paces and uh, tactics. So... So there's nothing in the sport I haven't done. So I can I can I I can relate this to to the people I work with. You know, well, this is why you felt like that. This is why you felt like that. Um, and you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, and it's not always going to be this bad. It's Plus, you learn something new about yourself every time on a starting line. You yeah. know, even if you're racing 40 times a year, you always find something new. That's like, hey, I didn't know I could do that, or I didn't know that I could feel that way at those paces, yeah. or. I didn't know if I hung on that guy's shoulder that it would be okay. <laughs> and you prepare for every eventuality then, you know, yeah. because you experience it. it you know, um, 
if, if you don't experience it, then you, you don't know how, how, how to cope with it during the event. And I, I, I try to be full service coach, you know, and, and, and sometimes switch things up and change things around just, uh, just to s- screw with their minds sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what races are all about, you know. And, and if they don't race a lot, then they are learning something in the trainer. Now, that is a little bit harder for a marathon because you can only do so many of those, right? So how yeah. do you try to get at bats in a marathon? But it's still it's still a race, you know, and it's still getting from point A to point B. And yet, okay, you've got longer time to experience uh, the stresses and the emotional uh, impact of the event. But if you're doing it often enough, you know, doing it on Sunday mornings, you know, sometimes I'll miss a, w- a water stop just mm. so they thirsty uh, or they learn how to cope with that <laughs> Chris is shaking his head because Steve I'm his coach Steve does the same shit and I'm notorious for uh, where were you, you read Steve the book oh I uh, forgot what corner you guys were going to be at. I, I, I told them it was going to be at one corner sure, and then another corner sure you um, did I drive by them <laughs> as they're banging on the car to stop oh, and I oh. say huh <laughs> I didn't see you there thrump thrump <laughs> I didn't I even forgot, know you were I there I forgot the cooler <laughs> <laughs> so before we get too far down the marathon track because we will cover that a lot on that let's talk about the olympic 10,000 you ran an 84 eighth place finish i believe if i've, if got, I've got mm-hmm. my notes right what was that experience like for you obviously you were a prolific racer so you'd done a lot of 10ks how did that one go for you how was your olympic experience it was a great experience um i was lucky enough to go to the first world championships in 1983 in helsinki hmm. which um was a real eye-opener in terms of I, I'd been to European Championships and Commonwealth Games before that uh, and World Cross Country Championships but it was a real eye-opener to me about o- the organization and, and the atmosphere of a major it was the first one as well the major major World Championships and I really enjoyed it um, I thought nothing could top that but g- getting to the Olympics was uh, icing on the cake I think it was 13 years of hard work, 14 years, of 14 years of hard work, um, coming to fruition. Once again, there was a little hiccup in the in the selection policy that nobody actually knew what the selection policy was. <laughs> so they had a trial, and then they only picked the winner of the trial. So I had, which was Nick Rose, and I ha- so I had to go and do another race myself and uh, um, Mike McLeod. <laughs> we. Ha- and Julian Goder and Stevie Bins and all those guys. We had to go to the three A's championships in in London, and I was l- fortunate to win that. But really, I should never have had to do that. You know, fucking Brits. They do this all the time. <laughs> I I coach I coached an athlete this last. I coached an athlete who in nineteen in last two years ago two thousand what year are we two thousand seventeen two thousand fifteen. Um, She'd done everything that she needed to do to be selected for the European for the for the World Championships in the steeplechase. Um, we'd done everything. We dotted every I, crossed every T, and then they changed it like weeks before, uh, and they allowed some people who, who met the stand who didn't meet the yep. standard in. They didn't let some other people, and they just said, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna, comp- you're not gonna compete at the highest level, so we're not gonna take you." And it was so hard. And well, the next she year, she had the standard. She had the yeah. standard, and then they, they changed it that she had to run the standard twice. Yeah, she won the UK, she won the British Championships, and she had the standard once. And other, anyway, th- then we fast forward to 2016 for the Olympics in Rio, and we were leaving absolutely nothing to chance. And uh, we probably overcooked it, and we probably overworked it, and we probably did a whole bunch of other things just to be sure, because the opportunity to be an Olympian is 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 
par, the par excellence. Right. So there's no other experience of that. Um, and if she were in the other country, it, 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 not any other country, but in the other countries, it wouldn't have been that way. So it's it saddens me to know that that's the way it was then. But it also heartens me to know that they've been fucking with people all yeah. this time. So whatever. So let me ask you a question about eighty about eighty four. You'd run you'd run Chicago in eighty three. Mm-hmm. What was the selection process for the marathon? And would you have preferred to run the marathon no. in eighty four, or would you prefer to run the ten? I run the Chicago Marathon in nineteen eighty three because right. Bob Wright gave me four tickets to Park City. <laughs> Alt- altitude training. Uh, yeah, <laughs> three weeks of altitude training before, and I I took my wife and two kids. And wow. We went to Park City for three weeks. I did a couple of races. I think. Uh, um, Arco 10K maybe in Los Angeles uh, and anu- another one I can't remember where it was and then into Chicago you know so I I didn't train f- specifically for a marathon and I, d- and I didn't until several years later not not realizing at the time or understanding at the time that the kind of work I was doing was marathon based anyway mm. um, so I get to Chicago obviously it didn't go as well as I, I wanted it to I had to drop out at 16 miles Bob Wright had given me 1200 bucks per diem and I offered to give it him back and he says no just come back next year <laughs> of course I was pretty happy about that because I'd already cashed a check <laughs> <laughs> and, Cause you'd, cause and, and you'd spent, spent the money because yeah, <laughs> we needed it per diem <laughs> um, uh, and he said no come back next year and uh, it was a good experience um, and I, I learned a, a little bit it, it was the easiest 16 miles I'd ever run but I was in pain you know that's the only thing so when I did stop, I couldn't run any further. Hmm. You uh, had an injury that year. Just I I did it the night before the race, the night before Chicago Chicago Marathon. I went out for twenty minute run by myself, just a shake out bef- before the race. I got back to the hotel and Hugh Jones was coming out, the out of the hotel do- door, and he says, uh, "I'm going to do twenty minutes." I said, "Oh, I'll come with you then." And, and five minutes away from the hotel, my foot started to hurt, and uh, just strained a tendon on top of my foot. It was just bad luck. And maybe it was meant to be. Who knows? You know, um, uh, Joe Enzo won at the end of the day with Hugh second. So mm. maybe Hugh jinxed me. I don't know. <laughs> 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 he, was, he was messing with his competition. So you DNF'd in 83, came back in 84 after the Olympics, and you win the damn thing and set the world record. How did that happen? Did um, you expect something like that to happen? I know you didn't know you were on world record pace. It was a race. <laughs> and... Um, I had done that 14 years of mm-hmm. hard work before it, you know, so I was, there was no fear there. And I don't think I've ever feared a marathon or any race I've ever run in. Um, it was just a matter of getting to the start line healthy. Uh, obviously I, f- I finished, I had finished eight in Los Angeles. Uh, Nick and I and, uh, a friend, Steve Barry spent the rest of the Olympics. We were on the first day, the, uh, rest of the Olympics, um, drinking in Westwood Village <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and you beat you beat Nick at the Olympics yeah. for the record <laughs> just by one place I think I'm not sure yeah. I mean he was ninth I think uh, yeah. but uh, Nick and I have shared room a room for many years you know Helsinki the year before we shared a room uh, we've been to Commonwealth Games I can't so even right. imagine the the havoc that was being wrecked uh, upon oh. The locale. Uh, we were well <laughs> behaved. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's just we drank a lot of beer. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I don't see Steve Jones and Nick Rose being well behaved. I just don't see. I don't. I don't. I don't know that that's <laughs> in the in the cards anywhere. <laughs> oh, he, he was a good influence on me. <laughs> 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 I could. Yeah, but he. Um, but 
I went home then from the Olympics was over. We all went home, and uh, I I had six or seven weeks, maybe eight weeks, of, to get ready for Chicago. So I just I just went back to my winter mode, did mm-hmm. my cross country training. Uh, I don't think I ran more than two hours for my long runs, um, and came to Park City again. Only I was staying for maybe five weeks this time. And when in Chicago, I did three races. Uh, I think I won two of them, and I was second behind Carlos in run against Crime 15K in mm. uh, El Paso. And just behind Carlos, and Carlos was the Olympic champion then, of course. He was just he was just okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was never a shame, and you know, I was never disappointed to lose to Carlos. Because oh no, who would you know, be? Yeah, we had run against each other many, many, many times in in Europe. Um, uh, and then when in Chicago, just confident of my ability. Not, not. I, I didn't feel there was anybody that could beat me in in Chicago, and all I had to do was just sit on them for twenty miles and and take off. And <laughs> this, is, you know, the secret about marathon running is having that plan and sticking to the plan and a be a realistic plan. Um, you know, I was a 27, 39, 10,000 meter runner, 13, 18, 5K. Um, I had run 61 something for, m- for the marathon, half marathon. So, you know, I knew I was pretty healthy. Very fast, yeah. very fit, yes. And I, I said I was going to stay with them for 20 miles. I actually uh, took off at 19 miles because I had to chase um, Gabriel Camau down because he, he took off at 19 miles as well. So, so when w- you're, you're renowned. And known and renowned for your front running, typically, how hard was it to create that plan and to stick to that plan? Did you, was it because you knew it was the most effective and appropriate one for you, or or the most chance to win, or and and during the race were you bitten biting on the on the bit and bridle trying to trying to trying to get out from it, or how did that play out? Um, my f- my philosophy was to beat the other guys. <laughs> That's all I had to do. Yeah. Um, and and as I said, I I was fairly quick Carlos probably still had uh, some of Los Angeles in his legs mm. Deke might have had a bit of Los Angeles in his legs you know in fair play they, they still ran 209 and 209.30 but uh, so so they still ran fit really fast considering that eight weeks before they'd run Olympic marathon um, but I was I was kind of gambling and banking on that you knew that going in well or you, you that's that was my philosophy going in right. and, uh, and like Which I say I had that stay with him for 20 miles that's all I had to do uh, and I got past 16 miles where I dropped out the year before and I sort of give it a <laughs> 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 I can do this <laughs> Deke was surging around about that time and uh, he would look at me and I'd look at him and, and there's photographs out there I think of us looking at each other like <laughs> that and that's awesome we weren't checking each other out dude. I don't like <laughs> him that much um, <laughs> but we got past 10 miles and uh, it was 40 48.10 maybe or 47.55 10 miles and I looked at the clock and I couldn't believe that we were running that fast <laughs> and uh, I said I said to Dick uh, Deke, is that is that right he says why is it too slow for you you're like yes but it it went to plan perfect yeah you know, uh, 18 miles we had to take a left hand turn and and unfortunately there was a water table right there on the turn which was a s- silly place to leave it, to put it. Um, and Gabriel Camo 
cut across the field because there was still 10 of us there then, yeah. 18 miles. Gabriel came out, cut across, and Jeff Smith caught his heel. Gabriel went down. Jeff Smith was on his way down. And as he was going down, I just grabbed his arm and held him up. So I was totally aware of where I, uh, of where I was, what I was doing. You know, I was listening to the helicopters and the cops going back <laughs> and forth. And I just grabbed him. Otherwise, he'd have been on his nose like he was at New York when he... Yes, got when at, he the finish. at the finish at line. The finish line. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just realized then it's time, it's time to get out of that mess before somebody yeah. did fall down. Uh, the guy who caused that fall jumped up, grabbed his water and took off. so i chased him down got him at 19 miles and i never looked back then Uh you dropped the hammer you ended up winning by over a minute i believe Mm -hmm. and running a 443 23rd mile Mm -hmm. which is only two seconds shy of world record pace now current world record pace but you didn't know you were running the world record when did it hit you or that that there was some record at stake when i crossed the finish line Uh and uh, you know uh chris brasher the founder of London Marathon, uh, was on the press truck. And at 23 miles, he shouts, Steve, three more miles at five minutes, and you've got the record. I thought he meant course record. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there's a clock in front of me all the time. And it, I, 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 I had no idea what it meant. You know, it, it was just a clock ticking away. And I'd, I'd think, oh, another mile, and another mile. And I get to 40K, and I think, I think to myself, 2k to go six minutes i'll be f- i'll be yep. fine if i can <laughs> hang on for six more minutes i yep. can do it um five laps yeah <laughs> but then i cross the finish i run in on home straight i see the clock 27 40 41 42 43 and i pump in my arms and pick my knees up and racing for the finish line and the clock was going faster than i was going obviously <laughs> um, and i cross the finish line and two cops grabbed me right away took me uh, down to the end of the finish in front of and said Hey, guy, you just broke the world record. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> By 13 seconds, yeah. no less. Um, yeah, because it was Deke's record, right? Yeah. yeah. So you've been quoted as saying, sometimes I thought it was the worst thing I ever did, breaking the world record that day in Chicago, but for the most part, it is the best thing I ever did. What do you mean by that? Um, whenever you do something like that, and obviously it's, there's a huge impact on your on your life, you know, not just yours, but your family's and everything. And it was... A, it was from going from a journeyman kind of runner, uh, even though I'd done everything, you know, been to every major games, every uh, every major cross country championships uh, in the previous fourteen years, it was still a step into the limelight, you know. And um, it uh, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I had to get a telephone to start with, <laughs> um, <laughs> a landline, <laughs> uh, with an answering machine. You know, so, so you could take media calls. <laughs> so I could screen it. Yeah, <laughs> it was, the phone was going all the time. That's awesome. you know, from getting no calls to getting you know 100 calls a day. So um, it took you from this blue-collar runner who got to kind of stay just under the radar to yeah. somebody that was thrust out into the limelight. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, th- th- although it's, it's been fun, it's been great. Um, I, I've been places, and um, I, I, I'm actually here now because of what I did th- that day. You know, not because what I did the previous 14 years, but what I did that day, and it cha- it just changed things forever. You know, it's like uh, um, it was pr- it's just phenomenal. You know, uh, there's intrusions. Um, 
that you you wish would go away you know uh, intrusive people you wish would go away but uh but there's been a lot of good things go out of it so you've won you won four major marathons correct mm-hmm. and which one of those four now means the most to you that you look back and say what what which one means the most i w- i don't want to put yeah. the words in your mouth yeah. for why it might uh, mean they all do i mean they all mean a lot to me I- even toronto you know um because uh 84 obviously the world record you know um nobody least of all myself could see that come in uh when it did it was you know a, a shock to me as as much to anybody else i i'm a i'm a racer i just race against people mm-hmm. um the london i kind of partied a little hard after chicago in <laughs> 84 <laughs> And <laughs> I, remem- I remember go- with my agent going to a cross-country race in uh, El Guibar, northern Spain. And I could just get squeezed into my uniform, <laughs> <laughs> my racing uniform. It didn't look very good. <laughs> uh, he took a picture of it and sent it me to me. He said, Jonesy, you signed this contract for, lo- for London. It's um, three months away. <laughs> I think you s- need to start training. <laughs> You're a little chubby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I did. I, p- I put, I put uh, social life on on. Uh, on hold I, uh, whenever I train for a major race and I would stop drinking for six months mm. uh, this time it was three months <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it was a it was a wild roller coaster after coming back from Chicago in 84 um, so I trained really hard uh, and I was coaching myself at the time as well I I trained hard I, I did what I thought I needed to do and a week before London Marathon. A uh, couple of weeks before I finished 25th or 35th in World Cross, hmm. not too far behind Dika Stala. So I knew I was, I, yeah. I was, I was getting there. Then a week before um, London, I ran the British 10K Championships in Battersea Park, and I finished second behind Jack Buckner. 28-13, I think, something like that. I think I ran. Uh, so I, I knew I was in yeah. pretty good shape. But three months before London. You wouldn't have thought I'd I'd make the start line. I thought I'd, I'd have to have two people's places. Double <laughs> 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 uh, double wide. But there was a pretty good build-up with the press and with uh, Brendan Foster and uh, BBC because Charlie obviously got the bronze medal in yep. in the Olympics in yep. Los Angeles. He was he had won London the year before. He was, although I I was still until the night before London, I was still the world record holder. Uh, Charlie was the favourite, and I, I, I wanted to beat Charlie. You know, Charlie was getting all the, the glory, I suppose. Yeah. Because, they, I was in the air force. I had a secure job. Um, they, they let me train a little bit, you know, before work and after work and all that sort of stuff. Um, and lunch times, Charlie was a Nike guy. He, you know, so they, they pitted us against each other, trying to say that Charlie was the blue collar, but I was the blue collar guy, not Charlie. So, um, we get to the race. I knew I could beat Charlie. Char- Charlie, if we get to, te- to 20 miles, I could beat Charlie over, over t- six miles. Cause he couldn't beat me over 10K. Yeah. It's a strange philosophy. For, it uh, you but know, it works. It's weird how yeah. it works, but it works, doesn't and it? And I just <laughs> had to stay with him for 20 <laughs> miles because I knew he couldn't beat me. Uh-huh. Uh, 20 miles, I think there were still s- five of us, six of us. Actually, there's a photograph of five of us. Uh, uh, the guy from Denmark, myself, Alistair Hutton, 
Charlie and Christoph Hill from West Germany. And Chris in that photograph, Christoph Hill is the only guy who never won London Marathon. There's <laughs> four of us in that picture. <laughs> That's, that crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. That's um, great. <laughs> so we get to 20 miles and I start picking it up, but I, I, I wasn't surging, but I just started to put the hammer down, just t picking up, picking up every every mile, and one by one they all dropped off, and uh, it's just me and Charlie, <laughs> and I knew he couldn't beat me, so I knew it. Uh, you had him where you wanted him. Yeah. Um, we get to 23 miles, and I said to Charlie, I had a bad stomach. I had some quiche the day before with <laughs> some <laughs> something on it that didn't agree with me. Mm -hmm. So before the race, I was in the bathroom maybe four or five times. It's not a typical uh, pre-race meal, no. quiche. <laughs> well, that was my smart training, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, all part I'm of the plan. I'm sure we'll talk about nutrition tonight. But <laughs> all, all part <laughs> of the plan. But um, I had this quiche at the expo. I was starving. So uh, the next morning, I was going to the bathroom time and time and time again. At about three miles into the race, my stomach started cramping and started hurting. Well, anyway, and it got worse all the way through the race. We get to 23 miles, and I say to Charlie, um, Charles, I'm dying to go to the bathroom. What, what should I do? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me. He goes, stop. <laughs> <laughs> what a wise man. <laughs> and we're right outside the Tower Hotel, which is leads on to the, the Tower of London, where the crown jewels are kept. And there's these yeomen of the guard, beefeaters, they call them, yep. uh, guard in the tower. And for some reason, I think because it, it was so narrow, there's no spectators there. There's just these yeomen of the guard guarding the gates of the of, of the tower. So I said, oh, I pulled over, did what I had to do, <laughs> and uh, caught him back up within 25 seconds, I think. <laughs> uh, he obviously knew I'd stopped, so he was He, he was, was going, gunning. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, took, you took his advice. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I caught him. And then we were going into Blackfriars Tunnel, which is about 24, 24 miles. And uh, somebody shouted, come on, Ebbervale. I'm from Ebbervale. <laughs> so I, I think it, it was uh, a, a guy who became a coach after that. Um, Begin the tunnel. I came out eight seconds in front of him. And I, it, nev I never looked back. You know, wow. I ran 2.816. Charlie ran 2.832. Um, once again, it's one of those occasions where somebody said they didn't think I'd be ready in time, and I just put myself through it and got there. <laughs> you know, so every race, you know, whether it's Chicago, London, uh, Chicago again, um, or New York. You know, New York was... A f a f I should never have been there because I should have been in Seoul at the Olympics. Oh, that's yeah. Uh, but I didn't get picked. And I had run Boston, I think I ran like 2.13 or something, 2.14 in Boston that year. And the next day they were selecting the British team and I, I wasn't on it. You know, there's a former world record holder, um, winner of three, th three majors, <laughs> four majors. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't get picked. Rob DiCastella came to my room, knocked on the door and he, he, he said, I've just heard you didn't get picked, I'm really sorry. The best run marathon runner in the world and he didn't make his national team. Uh -huh. So I, I uh, accepted that. And, you know, I didn't make a fuss or anything. I didn't get picked. I didn't get picked. Uh, during that summer, I came to Falmouth, where I used to go every year for, yep. for vacation. To family and the, and the kids, uh, six weeks in Falmouth. I trained my backside off. I'd committed to New York. So I'm in, in Falmouth. My sister's birthday, July the 11th, 
I, I call home from a pay box on the uh, side of the, um, the uh, casino in, in Falmouth. My sister goes, she, first thing she says, oh, hello, um, you, congratulations. I said, what for? She said, you've been picked. I said, for what? You've been picked for the Olympics? I said, no, I haven't. <laughs> she said, you have. I said, I haven't. She said, you <laughs> have. I just read it in the papers. <laughs> <laughs> I said, nobody's contacted me or anything. So when they did act eventually contact me, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> I, mean, I was six weeks into hard training for, yeah. for New York. And I knew I, I wasn't going to give myself every chance to run well in Seoul. You know, I, I, I never wanted to go just to make the team, um, especially from being a you know, British record holder, former world record holder, uh, to just making a team just because it's Olympics. I, I don't think that's right. You know, I'm either going to go there to try and win it or I'll save it for another day. And I did. And of course, I went, got to New York then and, and won New York. <laughs> won the damn thing. <laughs> I love it. Fierce. Now, and, and, uh, and Jolinda Bodin, who won uh, the Olympic Seoul. gold medal. He won in Seoul. Mm-hmm. He, at the presentation after New York, he was at the back of the, of the uh, audience watching me get my award and I walk back and he looks up at me and thank you yeah, thank you <laughs> <laughs> you weren't there to give you know me that, a fight that, that brings up another question I have for you you know on, on you know the, the topic of drugs has is such a such such a it's just overwhelming the conversation of nearly every talk we have mm-hmm. about the sport and back then in the 80s people weren't talking about it that much but there was a brand new drug on the scene that was definitely absolutely changing things and I'm not I'm not uh, you know, I'm not shy you figuring that one out already right and uh, in my opinion whatever whatever aids and assets there were for Jolindo Bourdin to take Jolindo Bourdin was taking and utilizing any asset that he possibly could I just I will stand on my grave to say that um, how knowledge how how known was it in your world that these think that this that the EPO and these these things were available and then what was your relationship to that in terms of how you approached your racing and how you looked at the sport itself? Um, I mean, I, I would I can't imagine a scenario in which you would be involved or uh, complicit no. in that just because I, I the little I the, what I know of you as my hero and also what I know of you just talking to you is that's not part of your game. So how did you respond to that? And how did you deal with that in that time? Uh, I mean, there was always uh, people casting aspersions and and uh, and pointing fingers and. Uh, spreading rumors but you know uh, you never really knew okay the Russians and the East Germans uh, it was pretty the Italians yeah pretty prolific <laughs> um, and and the Italians in in the end um, mainly because they some of them have admitted it since yes you know um, I think Alberto Kova admitted yes. he was blood doping yes he did mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's so sad I mean today They can go retrospectively back and ban somebody, and and six years later somebody gets bumped up to a bronze medal or a, or a silver medal or a, or a gold medal. They never did that back back in our day. When you think that Alberto Kova, um, uh, Marty Vainio, Schildau, Kunze, uh, you know, they were all doing something. And they were in your race in '84 yeah. in the uh, ten. Every every major final. You might have been. Europeans, you might you might have been an uh, Olympic medalist. Europeans. <laughs> Uh, world Championships and Olympics. Uh, they, uh, you know, I made all those finals, and they were the guys that messed the race up. Yep. They were the guys that took the initiative, and you know, going from running 
1345 to a to a 1318 for the second 5,000 yes. in, in, in a 10K. And it was unheard of. Right. In, and they were doing that. They were sprinting 52 seconds for the last 400. It Off a 1318 yeah. pace, yes. And it's and it, 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 it takes a lot um, away from the credibility of, of, of our racing and our blue-collar background, our racing mentality and our honesty, I think. T- if that, that happens today, then obviously they would get caught and people would be bumped up, you know. Um, Marty Vigneau got caught in 84. He won the silver medal yep. in the 10,000. And he was coming out on the track to run the heats of the 5,000, and they stopped him and said, you've just, you've just been banned. <laughs> and they took his medal off him and gave it to Mickey McLeod. Yep. Um, and Mickey finished second to me in the, in the trials. <laughs> <laughs> the second trial. Um, but no. The second trial. <laughs> I, I, I was in awe of Alberta Cova for a long time um, because I raced against him quite a lot. And off seasons, in terms of not Olympic years or not major championships years, then you would beat him, hands yeah. down. And, but come to major championships, then he would just find that form and Marty Vine were the same and his kick whether his kick was phenomenal absolutely legendary and like Mo Farah uh, he was the Mo Farah before the Mo Farah yeah, right yeah. really he, that's the way he raced yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think um, I may be doing more of a disservice but I don't think Mo would have outkicked Kova no I don't think so either yeah, yeah. 52 seconds off of yeah. those paces in a 10 is mm-hmm. incredibly yeah. fast yes it's a big statement about Kova but hopefully he was on EPO and Farah is he not. I think he admitted to blood doping anyway. So. Yeah. yeah, that was the easy one to do though. Yeah, but um, yeah. So let's let's talk about marathon training. You're obviously an experienced and and a re- marathon resume speaks for itself. And now you coach athletes at the elite level and then adult athletes at the marathon distance. From your experience in the race, what have you taken to marathon training? What are what are some of the principles that you bring? Um. I still stick to the long-term theory. Uh, I still think that you need a very strong and wide uh, endurance base. Uh, Mine was, like I said, 14 years in the making just to get to 1984. Um, uh, Frequent racing, because you look, going back to learning, um, learning your trade, learning how to cope with stresses, I mean, it's all part of it. It's not. It's not actually doing the twenty milers or doing the twenty-two milers or or just the hill running or or or, or the hundred and ten miles a week. You know, it's not just that. It's just putting it all together and and being confident there in in your head. This is what I'm doing. This is what's going to work. Yes, it worked for me. And no, we're not all different. But I I do know what works. <laughs> I have a guy in in my group, uh, Tyler McCandless. He's been with me now three and a half, maybe four years. Um, very inconsistent when he joined. Very inconsistent, whether it's 5K, half marathon or marathon, or 10K. Um, but he stuck with it. And it's four years now of, of consistently, incrementally increasing the, the workload over the last four years to, to the point now where... He's running better than he's ever run. He has the confidence and strength in, in his in the, in the training he's done. 
on MB, of course. Um, uh, every race he's done the last four months, he's run faster than he's ever run them before. Uh, just run a P PR half marathon, PR 10 miler, and he's going into CIM. Uh, and he'll, he'll run, you know, 214, sub 214, which is a two and a half, three minute PR. Yeah. But, uh, and I've, I've sat him down, uh, sat him down and talked to him about this. It's because of that consistency of training, consistency. You and, and sometimes, sometimes I sex it up a little bit, you know, <laughs> Um, you know, throw in some two minutes or three minutes or whatever, just, just, just so, so they don't get too bored or too di disillusioned or too stale. But when I was, my winter would be Tuesdays five minute efforts, Thursdays hill workout, Saturdays three minutes or two minute efforts, week in week out, week in week out all through the winter. With a bunch of miles, I'm sure around. Oh that. yeah, yeah. and still running a hundred miles a week, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I've raced well off a hundred miles a week, whether it's summer, winter, or spring or fall, and and several times a week sometimes. But he's just realizing now, and he's reaping the benefit of it. And and a couple of my girls are as well. They're reaping the benefit of this. Just keep keep in there, keep doing it, and stay confident in in the workload you're doing, staying confident in what they're doing, and believing that that I'm pointing them in the right direction. We like to say the miles make the champions, so. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. Um, what else is in your formula, though? Because obviously there's the consistency and the consistent work, but from a workout standpoint or from mixing in speed during long runs, is there any any other element that you would put as really important? There's no real recipe for it, you know. Yeah. We're all a little different, you know, and, and as a coach, you, you, you look for these differences in your athletes, you know. But for the main part, it's a steady diet of the miles, a steady diet of the, you know, the five minutes and the hills, um, cross country running. You know, I'd say from 1980 until until I came here, 40 percent of my running was on cross country. You know, um, and pushing that envelope all the time, pushing the envelope. Today, you ask somebody to do a threshold run or, or tempo, it's a workout in itself. W my, I run tempo every day, <laughs> <laughs> every day that I wasn't doing workouts. Oh, or even the morning of the workout, I do, I do tempo. Now it's a, it's a whole different workout in itself, you know, progression runs and tempo runs. I did it all the time, and, uh, and passing that, that on to people, lifting the, the p it's about how fast you train as well, you know, people like to run, they're at altitude, so it's like 630s or 645s, you know, women run that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, these guys shouldn't be running slower than 610 ever. But you created you just talked about a 14 year base a 14 years of work that allowed you to get to that space mm -hmm. talk a little bit about your adult athletes that you're coaching who are um well like you which one of our listeners may not know this you alluded to it a little bit but you worked a, a very yeah. physical blue collar job throughout your entire running career until you moved to the states yeah. um but your adult athletes are are in their own way um under the stresses and the and the challenges of, of a workaday, and most of our listeners are in that space. 
talk a little bit about your experience with that and also how you coach your athletes that are in that role and how you look at how you modulate or change or do or or or, or work the training with that regard um back in the day my day uh for me i mean i was lucky i was in the military no i wasn't in the military so i could run no they didn't give me time off specifically so i could train or go to races except for when i was representing not like these guys in Colorado Springs. No, no. <laughs> no. But, but, you know, um, so, and everything's organized. You know, uh, the, moment, uh, the moment I got married is when my running life started to become organized <laughs> because I was getting regular meals. <laughs> um, I was, I had somebody looking after me. Uh, yeah. The military was regulations and do this, this time, this time, this time. Uh, working, I'm talking right now. Uh, working shifts. Uh, days and nights um, so my, my life is organized I didn't have to think outside the box today everybody thinks outside the box because they want a, a balanced life a balanced lifestyle Pete Ray from uh, yep. Zap Fitness mm -hmm. uh, just had a, s a problem with one of his athletes that he had to let go and I just had the same problem with one of mine where yes they want to qualify for Olympic trials they want to be better runners they want to be elite runners but they want a balanced lifestyle but you can't do that you can't you know einstein didn't have a balanced lifestyle mozart didn't have a balanced lifestyle you know um you get to the top because you focus on that one thing you know not to the exclusion of everything else but it, it does become the priority um people can't do that especially uh, i was going to say especially americans but <laughs> Go ahead. You can cast okay. aspersions because okay. I'm in 100% <laughs> agreement with you, but being one myself. But <laughs> I, I do understand that there's more to life t today than it was 40 years ago when I when I started on my uh, elite running career. I suppose um, there's more to do. There's m there's more expectations between relationships and uh, and uh, whether it's work or f or personal. Um, you have to be making a, a, an equal contribution to those relationships mm -hmm. and, to, and to those social issues. Back then it was, I'm a runner, you know, I, I run, okay, I fix airplanes as well and I have two kids and, <laughs> and a wife, but my wife supports me. She's, she's, she, I mean she's reaped the benefits of, of my running for the last 35 years. Yep. Uh, you know, so it, to explain to people uh, and a girl just left my group and and I love her dearly she's been with me f for one of my longest athletes but she just wanted more out of her own life uh, she didn't have that drive I suppose um, to she still wants to improve um, but she's just got a new boyfriend she's got a job that's pretty demanding and um, she's socially involved with lots of things with her mom and stuff like that so does your training so she left does your training require that of athletes? Do you do you sort of bake into the mix uh, a separator between those who are going to make those commitments and those who no. don't? Uh, at the end of the day, they, they are the people that choose what, <laughs> what they want to do. I know I, I, I can try and influence it. Nine times out of ten, it backfires when you try that. <laughs> um, but you, I try to give everybody the same attention. Um, I invest in my athletes emotionally. Uh, they mean a lot to me. You know, this 
it's and it, it's not financial or anything like that. It's just that it, I I become part of their lives. They become part of my life. Uh, it's it's very emotional sometimes. Um, but if they don't want to do it, I can I I back off. You know, if if I if they don't reciprocate <laughs> the attention and the, the to de- to detail or the, or the, the effort I put in, if they don't reciprocate that, then I I back off. And that and that hurts them then. You know, oh why yeah. are you doing that? You know. Um, oh, I yeah. Somebody yeah. recently told me you can't want it more than they do. And so that's sort of some yeah. of it. Like and I don't have any ego here, you know, because I've done everything. <laughs> you know, I'm just yeah. trying to pass it on and, yeah. and try and help them. You know, that's why it's so frustrating when other groups, uh, NOP to, 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 to make an example, is they have everything they need, you know. And my guys work in stiffs. Yep. You know, and they're trying to compete against those guys, you know, whether they have the best chemists or best doctors, best physios, best shoes or best whatever, you know, um, or best uh, pay slips. You know, it's, they can't, it's tough for them to compete. So I try to make it as easy as I can for them and give them what I think it needs, it they need to do to get there. So you're, you're notoriously, maybe that's, well, that's probably the right um, word. Notoriously anti-technology. You know, mm-hmm. as Americans, we're bashing them, so let's bash them. I mean, in the last ten years, we have three Americans that have run two hundred eight or better in the marathon. Even Rupp himself hasn't done it yet. We've got Ritz, we've got Meb, and we've got Ryan Hall. Three guys in ten years have run two hundred eight times. That well, we're one running. did, but he did it on a on a on a fairy tale day. But well, I mean, but he ran it other times as well. Yeah. You're talking about Hall, but yeah. anyway, three Americans in ten years have run two hundred eight. You were doing it in the eighties with by the way, many other Americans at the time, <laughs> yes. you know, without the benefit of special recovery, this and Alter G treadmills and Garmin's and all this support and technology that athletes have access to, to today. What's your take on technology and the role it might be playing in holding some back? Um, it's a huge role it's playing. Um, I have to be careful what I say here. Um, you don't. You don't really. Oh, okay, I won't. <laughs> I, I believe it's made us slower. There's too much information out there to start with, and these te- and technology gives you more information. You know, whether it's how many heartbeats, how many strides, um, how many miles, how many kilometers, how many minutes. It's it's just too much out there, uh, and it, the philosophy today is, except for the a, a, a small minority i suppose of elite athletes today the technology technology and the philosophy today is to get from the start whether it's a 5k a 10k a marathon or cross country race to get from the start to the finish feeling as good as you can (laughs) feel (laughs) and being as relaxed and comfortable and not be stressing your body and uh, you know counting the birds and (laughs) counting your strides and picking your nose or whatever (laughs) Um, instead of Gun goes, and you run like bloody hell to get to the finish line and beat everybody else. It's not that anymore. It's, oh, i got to stay in my comfort zone, or I was going to go out a little easier so I could try and uh, pull it back the second half. But nine times out of ten, that doesn't work anyway. Um, it, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, mass participation is great in terms of getting people off the couch, uh, out there training, out there running, but... There's no real information out there, real information out there for 
the people, good club runners, unless it's a good club coach, um, where they can become students of the sport and and read about you know, Zatopek and Kutz and Nurmi and and uh, you know Gordon Perry and Chatterway and, and and the greats, the greats of of our sport from from the past. Uh, it's it's all about a five week program for a faster five k, <laughs> and and, and 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 how to. What is the one we gave shit to? How to not run to get faster? Yeah. How to watch yeah, a video yeah. game yeah. to yeah. get? How to watch a video game? World honor goal. <laughs> running less is more. How to yes. optimize <laughs> your not running? Yeah. which was <laughs> unbelievable. And that's because there's no hardcore magazines out there anymore. That's so yeah. true. Yeah. Right. I, yes. I think, I think New In- New England Runner is probably the closest to a hardcore uh, running magazine, an informational ma- mag- magazine that that you can get. And the Running Rogue podcast is doing its part. We're doing our best. We're trying. Yes, we're doing our best. Uh, you've got to be constructive as well as destructive you know the criticism has got to be uh, both sides even so let's talk about the mental side we've referenced it a little bit with this idea of dealing with failure you were obviously a fierce competitor and a good closer in races and once you generally had your foot on somebody's neck they didn't come back to you Mm -hmm. so what do you attribute to that in you and how do you coach the mental side of the sport um in me, okay, I had a philosophy all my running career, and it took a long time for it to start to work for me, was I, want, I wanted to annihilate everyone. <laughs> I, didn't want to, I, I wouldn't win a race by a second if I could win by 90 seconds. I wanted to beat everybody. Obviously, when you're a you know, 20-year-old and running against Dixon and Clarkson <laughs> and... and and uh, Johnny Walker and good fucking luck, Br- yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Brendan and, <laughs> and and all the all the Brits. That doesn't happen very quickly, mm-hmm. but but I was never I was never afraid. Sometimes I'd be nervous going into some races, but I was never afraid of who I was competing against. Uh, and I was a boy amongst men back back in the you know, mid seventies, early eighties. Uh, and but I, I I was never afraid to have a go. I remember running a three k in Crystal Palace. It's got to be 78 or 79. And Brendan was there, Dave Black, Nick Rose, uh, uh, Henry Rono, um, uh, and, and a couple of Finns, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, on the, f- on the fourth lap, this little boy <laughs> took off. <laughs> and it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and people were like, oh, oh. And Steve Jones has, t- has taken off. He's gone off like a bat out of hell. Because there was only three and a half more laps to go. I only <laughs> lasted a lap. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I just wanted to you know, make, a, make a statement. You know, I was trying to run. Uh, and I think I ran a, a PR that, that day as well. But I just wanted to make a statement. that, that I wasn't afraid of him. I, t- I tried and take him on. And ev- 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 every race I ever ran, it was always, and sometimes I had, I ran way above my my level as well, just because I wanted to have a go at them. In Europe, they used to call me the, in Portugal and Spain and Italy. I was the fox because the gun would go and I'd be off, <laughs> and, and they'd all be going, "Oh no, he's here again!" Steve <laughs> Jones, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be an easy race. So if anybody ever beat me, they had to race to beat me. And so that was my philosophy, you know. I worked hard. Um, I trained. I trained hard. I worked hard. I didn't s- play hard until later. But, mm. but um, my philosophy was: I, I had to beat. 
about as much as I could. You know, there's people who could rely on, rely on a kick and uh, out kick somebody, uh, but I just, I, I just wanted to take them on right from the gun. How do you instill that in others that you coach? You can't if, they, if they don't have it in no, them, you can't. what do you do to teach them? I, 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 I started to believe there was something wrong with them. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I, know. I thought there was some adre- <laughs> adrenal gland or something that doesn't get him fired up. Take him uh, to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking to myself, why, why aren't they fired up? You know, and and even today, I still uh, it still confuses me a little bit that that th- there's that 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 hunger there to go for it. You know, regardless of where they might finish at the end of the day, everybody wants to play it safe. And and and, and as I said earlier on, it's try and run the second half a bit quicker than the first half, and because it looks good then. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at look at them coming through. You had a guy back when I first started running cross country. Would start at the back of the race, and he would finish fifteen or twenty seconds behind me. Then, uh, and I'd get a little bit of a write-up. Oh, Steve Jones won the Welsh Championships or the national title. This, this, that, the other. But Dave Hopkins, you should have seen him flying through the field <laughs> the second half of the race. He never won anything. <laughs> 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 He'd get more of a write-up, and, uh, and to me, that's that's like cowardice. You know, mm. it's like. Y- you're you're there to race and to hurt yourself every time. You, uh, otherwise, you don't run in the race. You know, uh, what's the point? Do you ever do you ever with your athletes? You know, you say you thought maybe there was something wrong with them. One of the tacks I take, Chris knows this well, that um, I I like to say I I like to put them in a cage and poke a stick at them, and <laughs> because I find that that everyone does have this. They have this reaction. If you t- if you hit them in just the right way, if you poke them in just the right way, mm-hmm. they'll rage at you. They'll wake up. Now, shifting, doing that appropriately and shifting it to the point where it then becomes internalized and is something that they can use um, is a little bit of a trickier task. Yeah. But it's almost like you can't get them to that place yeah. if you don't kick them in the nuts. And if you don't get them in a place where you, where you really – and I, you know, Chris knows this. I, I, I frequently will I – I lie, I cheat, I steal. I do everything I can possibly do. But at the end of the day, what I'm doing is poking them with a yeah. stick. Yeah. And um, it, it just – it's it's it is really cool though because there because of this dearth of of people really asking of these athletes their very best that they and the old school vision of the tough coach that there still is this romanticizing of it and so I can still mm-hmm. use that a little bit yeah. but at the end of the day if I don't if I don't have them by the heart if I don't have them to where then they're like thank you you woke me up. Mm-hmm. Um, you might as well walk away because there's nothing. There's no. nothing else you can do. If you if you if you poke them and they still don't respond, it's like fairly well carry on. Uh, you know, and like you said, you just, like you said, if they don't return that feedback loop in an appropriate yeah. space, then there's not much you it, can do for them. It, they'll take their money and you'll get them yeah. ready and you'll do your best yeah. with them. But but you're not. But the relationship but diminishes then. Absolutely. Um, but um, I'm a firm believer of a little bit of nastiness in the team is good. Yes. You know, <laughs> that competitive element amongst each other is good. A lot of times you don't find that now because people give up, <laughs> you know, oh, screw this and, and let, let the guy go or let the girl mm-hmm. go. Um, it's, and, and if you say something about it, like you say, poking a stick at them, they go home sulking sometimes <laughs> and, and you don't see them for two weeks and I need a bit of time for myself and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, but for the most part, um, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's like get into a certain level and that they see the result then. 
and it and it might just happen just like that one day you know they just see that i have moved up another level or this is working for me it could be a workout it could be a little 5k somewhere but all of a sudden they come back with that renewed appetite and renewed vigor the ones that really want to do it yeah and it really does help chris and i've had this happen in our groups where then the people that you did poke who then do the little things and take care of the things they need to and approach it with a ferocity and a focus uh, they they also shame the others around them yeah. and and the and the, and the and what happens is but you like to think that inspiring the others you like to think yeah. you don't who who, yeah. who the fuck cares <laughs> what actually happened how it goes but we do know that yeah. it happens and i never apologize you know one of the key things as a coach is you don't say oh that's right for them no you say mm-hmm. no that's what's expected yeah. and now you're seeing op- your eyes are open mm-hmm. um it's been so amazing listening to steve because it gives us there's so much that resonates with the things that you're saying and how we do things. Um, and I feel like sometimes Chris and I, we, I think we feel like we're the big bad guys and we're <laughs> telling people terrible things and that this isn't the way it is. Um, and I know in my heart of hearts, this is the way it has to be. And that's the way I was raised. It's yeah. the way I was coached. And, and I know my heroes did it this way. Um, and it's awesome for our listeners to hear another person who's been a lion of the sport and done so much who says, listen, it's not complicated. It's simple. That doesn't make yeah. it easy. And validating what you teach your own people as well. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. so last question, and then we'll wrap this. And this will c- get posted after we know results from CIM. But we've got a bunch of people going to CIM. we got other people doing Dallas mm-hmm. and other races coming in the winter. In our part of the country, we do our, our marathons and our racing here in the cooler temperatures. So what do you tell someone when they're going to the start line? Maybe Tyler, when he's going to the start line in, at CIM, what do you tell somebody? What's your way to get them ready for the moment? I think one of the important things is to, is to get him to, to reflect on the, the work he's done. You know, it's always on the work you've done, not the work you're going to do. It's the work you've done. Uh, so take his training program, a tra- training diary with him. You know, spend a, an hour or so just flicking through it. The last six or eight months, uh, the last two years maybe, mm-hmm. of uh, the training he's done, the consistency. Um, I've been lucky in my group; that nobody gets hurt from you know for more than one or two workouts because uh, uh, we change the medium we, we run on, whether grass trails or on the road or on the track even. Um, just be, c- you know. Gain that confidence. Geez, I worked hard the last six months. You know, uh, things are going to go well for me tomorrow. I did the same exa- exact same thing myself back in 1977, I think it was. Gateshead Cross Country Run. Uh, and I was warming up. The year before I'd finished 19th. And uh, I was warming up and thinking, I've trained really hard for this. I'm going to make all that pain that Bob put me through. You know, <laughs> whether it was on the track, on the road, <laughs> on the hills. That Bob put me through. I'm going to make it all pay off. Uh, and I finished second in the race, you know. Wow completely uh, out of the blue um and uh it's it, it inspired me then for for the next race and the next race and the next race and i think i went from 1976 uh, 1977 finishing 103rd or in the world cross in 1978 i finished 11th huh. you know um you get your inspiration and your and your confidence from looking back at that kind of work and that's what i'll tell tyler that's what i tell all all my kids fortunately tyler's a stat buff so he's kept every stat from Mm -hmm. everything even breaking wind here i think he's got he's how many times he's done that in a night in his sleep (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> so, so you know, hear Welsh going, oh, can I go back and look at that? <laughs> <laughs> That's I w- awesome. I have one more question because yeah. it just popped into my head because I was searching for it this week because I have athletes that are going... What, your head? No, yes, <laughs> and my ass. But I was looking... I've, I have athletes that are going absolutely out of their mind right now because they're in their taper and, and everything else. There's a quote, but I couldn't find it, that you that you gave. It might have been recently, but I'm not sure. That you discussed how one time before one of your races you felt that in your taper that you said something to the effect of, "I thought it was going to die." Do you remember that? Do you remember? No. Maybe not. So it would have been every race. <laughs> but <laughs> I read a quote somewhere where you'd said something to the effect of, "I literally before a race." In the week before, oh I don't yeah. think I can even move. I don't even think I can carry oh. myself. I think I'm. I think I'm gonna die. You, you always have this because you're easing back. You're out of your routine, right? Which is what I try and keep everybody in, even though they're easing back. Yeah, keep the routine. Keep this. Even though you're running forty miles a week less, right. just keep it. Um, and my, co- uh, we go out for uh, like the last workout on the Tuesday or, or the Wednesday, and I'd, I'd feel terrible. And I'd <laughs> say to Bob, Bob, I feel terrible. He'd go, and he would just say. You must have a race coming up. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But, true, so true. But staying confident is so so important. Yes. Um, and whether it's doing it yourself by by looking at your training diary um, or a few recent results, uh, or just get having a chat with coach. Yep. We love it. We got an hour and a half with Steve Jones. We got more time as he's going to stick around and talk to some of our athletes here in Austin. We really appreciate it, Steve. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for doing what you continue to do for athletes in our sport. It's really cool to see you passing down the wisdom of your career to the next generation. So really, really thank you. And you're passing it on here through this podcast in a way that I think we have really serious listeners who are very committed to to their craft and their art. And so we've probably offended some then. No, they, I th- believe me, yes. But they've <laughs> been—they've uh, only been reinforced in their offense. Right. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's two people who think like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. So thank you, Steve. We really appreciate it. And of course, we thank everybody for listening. This has been episode 52 of the Running Rogue podcast. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>